Jesus has been discipling his 12 followers over the last several passages, uh, showing to them in undeniable ways exactly who he is so that they might learn to trust more and more in him. That the more they come to know Jesus, the more they can put their faith in Jesus. That's the whole purpose of studying him. Because faith is not merely about how much you know, but who it is that you actually trust. And these 12 had witnessed in a series of four miracles, back to back to back, Jesus' authority over the natural realm, over the supernatural, over unhealable illness, and even over death itself. Each miracle, kind of a puzzle piece in a sense, forming the bigger picture, the culmination of which answers a question that even King Herod was asking himself. Exactly who is this Jesus? More and more the answer of which is that this Jesus can be none other than the Lord himself, the Son of God. But seeing these things and and witnessing these events is not enough. The next step in their discipleship process is to be sent on mission. And Jesus had just sent them out into the villages to preach the same message that he had been preaching and to use the same power he has been demonstrating over illnesses and over unclean spirits. Jesus sends them out to be an extension of himself to the very people who hadn't had the chance to hear his message or see these authenticating works. He sent them without any food, no money, not even an extra jacket, but they were to trust in him totally that he would provide even in the face of rejection. Jesus is preparing his apostles here to continue to do his ministry even when he will soon depart from them. And the prerequisite for this ministry is a true belief and a genuine faith and a real trust in him. We come to a text this morning which records the only miracle outside of the resurrection which is found in all four of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each writer uh, thought this event in our text significant enough that none would leave it out of their account. We come to a text where Jesus is teaching his followers uh, an even larger scale reliance upon him for the largest group of people in need that they had ever had to minister to before. We read in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Our Lord in these verses uh, demonstrates a great heart of compassion upon the people. And Jesus is showing to and, and modeling for his disciples this selfless love upon the ones who need his ministry most. That when these men will continue on in the mission, when Jesus does physically leave them, they can return again and again to this very heart of our Lord and our Savior. Now, the context is important. We've just been alerted in Luke's last verses to the fact that John the Baptist has been murdered and beheaded by King Herod. And John is Jesus' cousin, his forerunner. This is his own family, and this is a partner in ministry. This is the same John of whom Jesus said, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Jesus loved John. And so if there's any a time where Jesus would have wanted to take a personal day, this is the time. If there's any a moment where ministry could be put on the back burner just for a little bit, this would be the moment. Jesus could have prioritized himself and put first his own very understandable needs. And Jesus could have also prioritized the needs of the ones closest to him. 
These apostles have just returned from a very exciting mission trip into the surrounding villages where they had done their first ministry of preaching and of healing on their own that Jesus had asked them to do. I'm sure there would be account after account of how Peter said this and Andrew healed that and the demons had to submit and the people over here responded so well and the people over there not so much, but we stuck to your plan, Jesus. We trusted in you, Jesus, and it was amazing. And I'm sure that they are excited and exhausted and wanting to talk more about it. You have a, a bunch of little kids at home and their first day of riding the bike without the training wheels. Did you see that, Daddy? I was like this and then this and then I almost fell. Yeah, I saw it. But they often want to retell what had excited them the most. And it's important for us who care for them to let them do exactly that. It completes the joy and spreads it more. And so if there's any a time for Jesus to minister to his own very close and intimate followers to listen to their triumphs and their heartbreaks and their analysis of what Jesus had just sent them to do to witness their own personal growth in the process and a time to be away from the crowds. Just wait a day. I'll be back tomorrow. Wouldn't it be now? Perhaps the 12 could help to take Jesus' mind off the tragedy of John the Baptist who had just lost his head literally by a man who had rejected his message. But we don't find Jesus taking a personal day here at all. We don't find Jesus escaping from a mini vacation with the 12 to, to reminisce. We find something in Jesus' heart that is far more powerful than his own well-being. And it's far more pressing than enjoying the ones who are closest to him. Instead, we find Jesus looking at the crowds and welcoming them to him. This is not a fake it compassion because people are watching and I want to make a good impression. This is not turning it on because I have to. This is really how Jesus is. I think we sometimes have to take a step back and realize this about Jesus and it's not like these crowds are polite. They're stalkers. They're fixated on their own needs and their own wants more than Jesus' needs and his wants. And it's not like these crowds are going to all become believers. There are not many standing with Jesus when he hangs upon that cross. This is a mangled mess of me-first people who cannot give the guy a break. If you've ever seen paparazzi mob celebrities in the middle of their most private moments, you get an idea of the rudeness that people are capable of in their own selfishness. And yet it is that Jesus welcomes them, verse 11, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. He welcomes, he speaks, he cures. This is a genuine open window into the very heart of our Savior. Mark's account lets us know that when he saw the crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's Mark 6, 33 and 34. It's as if Jesus could see so much deeper than our eyes could see and therefore could have this deeper love that so many of us uh, are incapable of because he's stricken by their need and he treats their need as his very own. Notice that Luke does not refer to the people here as those who are sick and ill. But Luke refers to those in the crowd as those who had need of healing. This is specific to Luke. That that nuance seems to suggest that it wasn't only their misery which had brought them to Jesus, but the fact that their misery could be solved by coming to Jesus. Not that they were ill alone, 
but that they needed his particular healing with the point implicit that Jesus is sufficient for their needs. And so Jesus has this heart of compassion. He has this ability to help this very needy seed of people. And for the disciples who have just come back from a mission trip of ministry from the villages, and they want some time to recharge and to rest, and they see thousands of people hounding on Jesus, and they look at their Lord and realize this is not a job for Jesus, where he clocks in and then clocks out for his own personal time. This is Jesus who is so moved with compassion for this sea of people in need of him that his personal time is ministry time and that he has moved to action because he knows that there is always more ministry to be done than even he can handle in this moment and there are always more crowds that need healing than he is able to touch and always more ears and hearts that need to hear the good news of the kingdom of God than he is able to preach to before he departs and we begin to see more and more that the Lord over the storm with authority of the supernatural supremacy over the human body in sickness and even more powerful than death this supreme Jesus is also servant Jesus who willingly allows our needs to trump his very own. This is important for us to know, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in need. And Jesus is not looking at you begrudgingly or shaking his head like we can so often do when our kids make the same mistake for the 15th time or their coworker makes the same mistake for the 15th time or the boss. But Jesus is looking at you with in eagerness to help you and to heal you uh, where you need it most if you would just but come to him. Jesus is eager to help. He's welcoming of those who are looking for him to speak to them and to cure them. Do you believe that? Do you believe not just in Jesus' might and in his power, but do you believe in his very heart for you? that he wants you to come to himself. If you believe this about him, then you will come to him more and more, and you're gonna start coming to him more than you come to anyone else. And so Jesus is following, uh, showing his followers just what it is that it is within his very own heart. And I think that Jesus is also modeling to his followers the heart that is required for their future in ministry. Now, I don't think that this text means that we don't take breaks or go on vacations. Mark's account is explicit that Jesus commands them to come and take away a rest for a while. That's important, but I do think that a vacation alone is not the rest that fuels you for the task at hand. Or that time away from ministry alone will fuel you for future ministry. We need time with him more than we need time away. We need time with Jesus more than we need time away from work. Alexander McLaren, he makes this observation, Christ's heart felt more lovingly than ours because his eyes saw deeper and his eyes saw deeper because his heart felt more lovingly. If we would live nearer him, we should see as he did, enough in every man to draw our pity and help even though he may jostle and interfere with us. If we just live nearer to Jesus, we would have the same kind of heart as Jesus. It's not just time away, but time in closeness with our Lord and our Savior and our God, which will transform our hearts more and more to be like his very own. We can only be compassionate towards others who jostle us 
When we have felt Christ's compassion towards ourselves, we can only be this servant harder towards the masses. When we have been served by Jesus ourselves, we can only have this fuel and energy and motivation when we have rested in Jesus Christ and known his ministry to us. And so it is that if you need to recharge, you need to abide in the vine. And when you are recharged, you're going to give yourself away. We live in a culture that's so consumed with self health and getting away for me time and treating yourself and distancing yourself from negative people with their negative energy to give us a retreat to focus only on me, myself, and I as if somehow centering our lives upon ourselves is a real answer to true healthiness. That's a lie in the garden that caused humanity to fall into sin. Think about yourself more a little bit, Adam and Eve. More than God. And then we sometimes wonder why the church appears to be getting less effective. Perhaps it is that so many churches have bought into the lie of the devil himself. That more me time and less negativity is the answer to all of my ailments. And not closeness to Christ. Which makes us less me focused and more compassionate towards the crowds with the heavy negativity. And more outward oriented to the very ones who are in need of healing. If I could challenge uh, us in this room this morning with just the one thing, it would be to spend more time with Jesus Christ so that you can love others more and more and lose yourself totally in the process. And these are not mere platitudes. There's a great fatigue that comes in loving others. Yes, any tired parent. Ask the moms who are holding the babies. Ask any person taking care of aging parents. Ask anyone in ministry. And they all know that there is a great fatigue in making someone else's problems your very own. And sometimes we do get so tired, and then we reach out to anything and everything except our fellowship with our Lord and Savior because we think that's not going to do it, like a massage can do it, or a glass of wine can do it, or a guilty pleasure can do it. Anything that caresses me is a break I deserve and the break that I need. You can't really find a, an ounce of that in the Word of God. I mean, even our Sabbath days of rest are devoted to what? Worship and communion with Him. And brothers and sisters, please don't buy the lie that somehow being consumed with yourself and your needs is a true path to freedom. And serving someone else is a path to bondage. Sin at its root is bondage of the self. And freedom at its root is serving God and his cause. And so I think the next part of Jesus' discipleship of his apostles is their witnessing of Jesus' heart of seemingly unending compassion to show to them and model for them this heart of selfless love upon the ones who need his ministry the most. But I also think Jesus wants them to feel the impossibility of the task as well. Look with me at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, and they did so and had them all sit down. Uh, Jesus has shown these men his heart of compassion. 
And I think it is here that Jesus wants his disciples to feel two things, a responsibility for the people and, and the impossibility of meeting their needs with their own measly resources. That somehow it is both their duty to care about this mass of humanity and at the same time, this is utterly beyond their own ability. Now, these 12 are very practical men. Uh, as the day began to wear away, the sun's about to go down. This is not an era of street lights or cell phone flashlights. When it's dark, it is very dark. No one is eaten. 5,000 men, that's not counting women and children. Where are they all going to go? These thousands of people do not live down the street. This is a desolate place. These villages were all over. Many had traveled miles upon miles by foot to get here when the sun was shining. How are they going to get back safely to where they came from? And so they let Jesus know, we're in the boonies. We do have a responsibility to let these people know that they got to leave. Fend for themselves before it becomes harder and harder to do so. That's very practical advice, especially to someone who may have gone a little bit long in your teaching, Jesus. But Jesus responds to them, you give them something. You give them something to eat. Subtitle, this is your responsibility. The needs of this massive crowd is your responsibility. Jesus wants to impress upon his followers the weight of that, that he feels himself for the thousands upon thousands of people who need Jesus. But Jesus also wants them to feel at the same time this impossibility of the task as well. These 12 already know it's impossible. We got five loaves and two fish. That's going to barely feed us. We could try and buy food for all these people, but that's ridiculous. We just came back from a mission trip where he told us to bring no money. So if that's what you're suggesting, when you ask us to give them something to eat, we just don't see how that's possible. Now, here's the thing. I don't think this conversation is for nothing. Jesus can make food appear when he wants to make food appear. In Luke chapter 5, he caused enough fish to jump into the nets of the fishermen there who hadn't caught anything all night. Jesus caused a great enough catch that the nets began to break and the boats began to sink. Jesus can feed all of these people without ever having this conversation with his followers. But Jesus is not about merely demonstrating his own authority at this point in the text. Jesus wants to teach his followers how his power is relevant for their mission through them. And these 12, and all of us who follow Jesus as well, are called to mission two thousands of years later, and we need to feel the responsibility for the people around us who need Jesus. This is not just for uh, the, the preacher or the pastors or the church staff, and this is not a weight that only apostles should feel. This is a weight that we all as Christians should feel. This is a compassion that we all as Christians should have for the people around us and for the harvest and for the ends of the earth, for the people in our communities who have need of Jesus and may not even notice. Jesus wants us to feel that burden which he feels. But we so often, we want to take that responsibility off of us and place it on someone else or excuse it. We only got two fish, Jesus. We can't do anything but feed our own mouths. We don't have any money or any influence, so these people are going to have to fend for themselves. This cannot be our responsibility because we can come up with valid excuse after valid excuse after excuse to prove to you, Jesus, why this sea of unbelievers in front of us has nothing to do with us. They are not our problem. It's too impractical. I'm sure somebody else can do it better. 
I surely can't do it. And what is really driving our decisions in this life is not a heart that wells up in love for and compassion for others to experience the grace of God, but a heart that really just wants to rationalize and hand it off to someone else so we can wash our hands of the burden. This is practically impossible. It cannot reasonably ask us to minister to all of them, but Jesus wants his followers here to feel the burden for other people, even when it feels impossible that they can meet their need. And I think it's, it is that this miracle is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for this very point, that Jesus will command us to do what is beyond our capabilities. Jesus will often want us to feel responsibility that is too heavy for our narrow little shoulders. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. That doesn't mean we avoid it. That doesn't mean we brush it off or hand it off entirely. And these 12 do. They don't rebel. They start to go through the crowds and put them in groups of 50. There's faith here, but it's a faith that needs to be stretched a little bit more. It's a faith that needs to grow a little bit more because what these disciples have to understand and what we so often have to understand as well is that God works at the very point of our inadequacy. And we'll often use what little we think we have and what smallness we can offer to do things which are utterly unexplainable, which is where Jesus brings them to in the next few verses with a revelation of his own power and his own sufficiency. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the largest scale miracle that we have seen thus far in the book of Luke. You can't fake this. There are thousands of hungry witnesses who are no longer hungry anymore as a result of this demonstration of power. But Luke states the facts of the miracle in such a nondescript way. He took the loaves and the fish, looked to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave to the disciples. They all ate and were satisfied. This is nuts. Can you imagine being one of these disciples and watching Jesus break that bread and tear that fish and the bread doesn't seem to be getting any smaller? And the fish isn't running out, and you're running from one group of 50 to the next and coming back, and Jesus is still on loaf number one. How do you do that? What did it look like? Start making it rain? Even if I had 1,000 fish and 1,000 loaves, I wouldn't be able to get it to everyone this quickly. Give me some details, Luke. Give me a better visual. Where's the parting of the seas and the fire from the heavens? But it's so nondescript. It's so matter-of-fact that the impossible task and the weighty burden of responsibility for the masses of people that litter that village side, they all ate and they were all satisfied because of the power of Christ. Jesus himself is sufficient, period. There's no fancy, fancy magic here. Jesus Christ is sufficient for the impossible task. He's sufficient for this weighty responsibility. What we in and of ourselves are impotent to do and powerless to accomplish, Jesus Christ can accomplish through us. And this is the preparation that his followers need. As the 12 look to the thousands and look down at these two little fish and look up to the thousands again and back down at their five pieces of bread and out to the thousands again and shrug their kind of shoulders, this utter helplessness is not the end of the story because they put all that into the hands of Jesus 
And when all is said and done, they carry 12 heavy basketfuls of leftovers, one for every single one of them. Matthew Andrew writes, ministers can never fill people's hearts unless Christ fills their hands. And I don't think this passage is ultimately about feeding people. And the need visualized in this hunger for bread and fish is not merely about hunger for bread and fish. And this miracle is, is, is a picture, a portrait of the entire world. It's in need of healing. It's in need of a healing that only Christ can provide. There are people who are diseased and hungry and sin sick and falling all over each other and rude and selfish. It's a picture of mankind and poverty and waywardness without any kind of strength or power to do anything about the situation at all. And whatever people have in difference, what all of humanity has in common, a fundamental similarity is that we have each and we have all turned from the Lord. We have all disobeyed his commands. We have refused his lordship and thought we could live our lives in a better way and people are living in whatever which way they want. Romans 3, 23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet it is that the one in our text who would not even turn a stone into bread to feed his own face in his wilderness would multiply bread to feed the masses. But this is not about bread, bread. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The only solution to our sin sickness and spiritual hunger and wayward living is Jesus Christ. Our sin has blocked us from knowing him. Iniquity has severed our fellowship with God and has set us on paths to anything and everything but him that never ultimately satisfy the very desires of our hearts because God has designed our hearts to find satisfaction in him and in him alone. But Jesus Christ gives himself in an act of undeserved compassion. He pays the penalty of our sin upon that cross, taking upon himself the wrath which is due to each of us. This is how Jesus chooses to die. I want to cancel their sin. I want to wash away their guilt. I want to forgive those who have turned away from me. The blood and the body of Jesus does that, and nothing else ever will. For who can deal with the offense against an almighty and holy God but God himself? This is why Jesus dies. And yet Jesus rises from that grave on the third day, proving that his offering has been accepted. Defeating the power of both sin and death, and he ascends into heaven to advocate for us now to one day soon return for his bride. And the charge that he gives to his church is to disciple the nations. Feel the weight of that, the impossibility of that. And it seems that's the exact word to describe an impossible when we think of the Great Commission. The ends of the earth. With the Bible describing people who don't know God, Ephesians 2, as dead in sin, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. 
The Spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind. That's the world today. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what are we on with? What's the message? 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So we got an impossible audience, a foolish message, and you want us to disciple the nations? And we look at our crowds and our two little fish and look at the world and back down at these five little pieces of bread and you try and talk to family and they don't want Jesus. Sometimes it's impossible to get past the third sentence. And then you read the surveys. Christians aren't all that popular. Our influences gain smaller and smaller as the day goes on. You witness the agenda of secularization at the highest level, which leads into the schooling of our little children. And how can we compete with the amount of hours they get versus the amount of hours we get? It's the feeling of utter helplessness. But I think we're supposed to look at these 12 disciples carrying 12 big baskets of food and the thousands of people already eaten to their full and realize that though the task is impossible and though the burden is such that we are responsible The compassion of Christ compels us, and the power of Christ is sufficient to take what little we have and make much of Jesus in the world with it. You know, I wish someone would have taken a Polaroid of the 12 with the 12 baskets, take a picture of Jesus with a basket, uh, Peter with a basket, and just put it on our desk, put it on our dash. The next time we want to call something impossible, next time we want to talk to someone in our families that doesn't know Jesus and we think, what's the use? They never listen. Just look at Peter with his basket. Leftovers. Everyone ate. We need to look at these narratives before we deem a task impossible. Glance at these pictures before we go to our jobs and our schools and talk with our families. It's not impossible. I wish we would look at this snapshot from time to time so that we might have a little more confidence in the very one who sent us out on this mission, the very one who bled and died for our sin. For brothers and sisters, we were all once the impossible ones. We were the ones dead in sin. We were the ones sin sick and famished until he gave to us through other faithful people this very bread of life. And if we would just dwell upon our testimonies, perhaps we might actually go out and say something about Jesus to the people around us and not rationalize how that is not really my job or that we're too inadequate to do so. There are millions upon millions upon millions of believers throughout the entire world because of a mission that began with 12 people who saw Jesus, believed in Jesus, and went on mission for Jesus, and one of the 12 was a traitor. And even through his treachery, which handed Jesus over to be crucified, that became the very means by which God would save his people. There's no such thing as impossible. The power of Christ is sufficient. Have confidence, brothers and sisters, in his compassion, his power, even though the task he has called us to be responsible over seems improbable. There is enough of Christ for the masses with leftovers as well. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, I I pray that you would uh, remind us more and more how our smallness and our inadequacies and our uh, uh, weakness, that these are not uh, things that can destroy uh, your decree. I pray that you help us to really believe what we believe, that food multiplied to the masses is not just some 
old story we read to our kids before bed, but it's the ever-present reality that empowers us to do exactly what you've called us to do. I pray that in our limitations you would display the power and sufficiency of Christ more and more, and that through our little church family on this corner of this island, uh, you would bring masses of people to be fed by your Son, the very bread of life. Help us live more and more for his glory. Help it to be that his, our fellowship with him would be our joy and our pleasure. And would you empower us, God, to do what you called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.